We've mentioned before on this podcast that the term self-harm is an umbrella term encompassing a broad range of behaviors under which is included disordered eating, which we covered in episode 22, substance abuse and misuse, suicide, and non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. But some individuals with lived experience of self-harm suggest that the boundaries between these and similar behaviors are less clear than implied by research measures and definitions. Just how often do self-damaging behaviors co-occur with NSSI? And where does NSSI fit within the umbrella of self-harming or self-damaging behaviors? How often might someone who engages in one form of self-harm stop engaging in that form and instead transition to a new self-harm behavior? To answer these questions and to walk us through a few different structural models of self-damaging behaviors that might help us understand the co-occurrences of potentially harmful coping behaviors, I am joined today from Victoria, British Columbia in Canada by Dr. Brianna Turner. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Brianna Turner is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria in Canada and a registered psychologist in British Columbia. She received her PhD from Simon Fraser University, completed her clinical residency at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and held a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University. Her current research focuses on understanding when and why some people engage in behaviors that are physically harmful to themselves, including non-suicidal self-injury, disordered eating, and suicidal behaviors. She also teaches courses on mental health and evidence-based psychotherapies. She is intensively trained in dialectical behavior therapy, and in her clinical practice, she focuses on helping people reduce self-damaging behaviors, increase their ability to effectively manage emotions, and create a life worth living. Thank you, Dr. Turner, so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. How did you become interested in researching self-injury to begin with, especially in relation to self-damaging behaviors? So I have to say it probably started with my personal experience. Self-injury was something that affected me when I was a teenager and a young adult. You know, like a lot of people, I I kept that behavior mostly to myself and, and didn't really talk about it very often. But from time to time, I would, you know, become close with a friend, for instance, and develop trust and, and share with them that that was something was affecting me. I remember at the time being really surprised how often when I did share that that, that was something that was going on in my life to hear somebody say that either they had also had experiences with self-injury or maybe they knew someone else who had also shared their experiences of self-injury with them. Yeah, I think that that really set the foundation and shaped a lot of the trajectory that I've had in my work, although I wasn't aware of it at the time. And I certainly, you know, as a teenager, wasn't thinking like, aha, this is going to be my my career path. But after after that, I, I went off to university. I started studying psychology. I was really interested in sort of human behavior and how people come to have, you know, all the different unique experiences that we do. And particularly toward my third and fourth year kind of in university, when when we started to get to choose topics for our papers, 
I always gravitated toward writing about self-injury. And I think that was partly, you know, in, in my courses in university, we learned a lot about things like depression and anxiety, and even things like disordered eating or psychosis. But I really didn't see a lot about self-injury being discussed. It wasn't in my textbooks, apart from, you know, maybe a sentence or two. I wanted to understand, you know, this was something that I had heard about in my own life being something that affected a number of people that I cared about, and yet I wasn't hearing about it at all in the psychology curriculum. So I was kind of exploring a little bit of, you know, how do we understand this behavior? What are people doing research on? How are clinicians thinking about it? And then I had sort of a wild stroke of luck. In the course of writing one of my, my papers for class, I'd read this paper by Dr. Alex Chapman, Kim Gratz, and Milton Brown, and it talked about the experiential avoidance model of self-injury, which basically summarized evidence that one of the reasons that some people will engage in self-injury is because it helps them stop or avoid these extremely, extremely uncomfortable internal experiences be that something like really intense anger or disgust or shame or repetitive negative thinking cycles, traumatic memories, but that somehow self-injury is kind of helping them to avoid or decrease those internal experiences. And that made a lot of sense to me and suddenly kind of gave me language for understanding this shared experience that I'd had in my own life. So the stroke of luck is that I then learned that Alex Chapman had recently joined the faculty at the university where I was studying, which seemed like such a coincidence that I just read his paper. So I marched myself over to his office with all the confidence of a 21-year-old who was kind of keen into something. And I asked if I could work at his lab, and lucky for me, he said yes. And so... Later on, I decided that I, I wanted to continue my studies in psychology, and I applied to grad schools, and Dr. Chapman was one of the supervisors that I had applied to work with, and I got lucky again, and he said, yes, he'd keep working with me, and so I got to join his lab as a graduate student. And then while I was in his lab as a grad student, one of my jobs was to do diagnostic assessments with participants who were considering partaking in one of our research studies. And we were particularly looking at how different people manage their emotions and whether different types of emotion regulation strategies impact how people experience these aversive internal experiences. But we were looking for people with kind of a broad range of different psychological concerns. So my job was to do these really broad diagnostic interviews where I was talking with people not only about their experiences of self-injury, but also different problems with their mood, problems with their thoughts, kind of going through all of the different psychological disorders. So I really got to hear a lot about the concerns that the people who are participating in the research were experiencing. And something that really struck me is that it was very rare that I would speak with someone who said that self-injury was sort of the only card on the table, so to speak. A lot of the research participants who had self-injury were also talking about struggles with alcohol or drug use or risky sexual behavior or disordered eating. And I was just really struck that on the one hand, I had kind of carved out this path for myself doing research on self-injury specifically. And yet when I was meeting with people and asking broader questions, there was so much more going on that, that could have been a focus of the study. And so I kind of, I made it a little bit of my mission to make sure that I didn't get too narrowly focused on the self-injury to the extent that I forgot kind of the larger picture that I was hearing from people. I would say that was kind of the origin of my interest in, in not only self-injury, but then starting to kind of tie it into these other behaviors. And 
that experience or interest just deepened as I continued on in my clinical trainings, starting to work with people in a therapeutic context, particularly doing dialectical behavior therapy, and then kind of through other research experiences I've had working with participants, trying to keep that kind of broad context in mind. Wow, thank you for sharing. Were you at the 2013 IS in Vancouver? I was. I thought so, because that was my first IISS back in 2013. Yes. Simon Fraser University. Yeah, it was a little bit funny because I it was actually, well, this is actually something I didn't mention in my little intro, but I had gone to work with Dr. Laurence Clace in Belgium because she was one of the researchers that identified who had this focus, not just on self-injury, but also on its connection. And, and for her, it was specifically the connection between self-injury and disordered eating. Again, I was wildly lucky that I wrote her an email to say, hey, can I come work with you? And she said, yes. But that summer, I was actually living in Belgium. And so I had to come all the way back to Vancouver, where I'd normally be based for that conference, and then go back to Belgium. So my home city conference was unfortunately not the convenient, you know, stay in your own apartment situation that I think a lot of us think about. <laughs> yeah, the one time you leave your hometown, then the actual conference shows up there. So you have to go. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we met in Vancouver that year. I had, I don't remember, I think I joined IISS in 2011 or 2012, but wasn't able to go to a conference until 2013. And that was my first time to Vancouver. And it was so nice there. And I met you know, so many people. We probably had met. I think we might have. Yeah. I think we might have crossed paths. Although, again, like that conference was a bit of a blur. I remember being very jet lagged. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing your interest and how it originated. I, I didn't know that you had your own lived experience. I think that's something that I really credit your podcast on shedding some light on. You know, I've heard a lot of people who've been interviewed talking about their own experiences. And I think that's, again, that wasn't something that I had heard much about in previous years, certainly in high school. You know, my experience was really that even with friends who had shared personal experience, we didn't really have a lot of language for understanding it. So often we would kind of, we talk about it once and say, yeah, me too. And then we didn't really know how to continue the conversation, I would say. So it's something I really think is, is exciting with the podcast and the work that you're doing is I feel like there's more and more room for us to have those conversations with each other and, and share understanding of, of kind of what that means. Wow, yeah. I want to cry over here. <laughs> that that's so powerful. I, I didn't know. You know, I asked this question with everyone, not knowing how they got interested, and I imagine a lot of people have their own lived experience. But I think there is stigma. There's a lot of misunderstanding still to this day. And so I applaud anyone who is brave to share that and using this platform. I'm very grateful. And I know a lot of people with lived experience listen to the podcast and have reached out and feel that they're not alone when they hear yeah. these stories. Totally. That's rewarding to me. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I give huge props to all of the brave people who've gone before me. <laughs> I don't think I would have been so brave had it not been for them. So I, yeah. Oh, Try and follow in their footsteps, I guess. And to be out there publicly with that. Yeah. 
One thing, though, too, that you mentioned that I appreciated is you're talking a lot to people now with lived experience of self-injury who engage in other self-damaging behaviors that are not specific to non-suicidal self-injury. I like that you are open to that because everyone's different. You know, everyone is different when it comes to their lived experience of self-injury in some may also engage in self-damaging behaviors, and some might not. And I know we're going to be talking, diving into that today, but everyone is different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, I think that's something that really stays with you of, yeah, there's so many different stories. Yeah. And so many different ways that this can affect people. I'm all the more grateful for our conversation today. I guess we could just jump into the question specifically about self-damaging behaviors. I didn't send you this question. I didn't plan to ask you, but when we talk about self-damaging behaviors, how did you come up with that term versus maybe self-harm, deliberate self-harm, or other terminology that might be out there? It's a really good question, and I have to say it's not one that I I don't feel settled on self-damaging behaviors yet. I'm not sure that it's I mean, I think it's descriptive of some of the core aspects that what we're talking about is a behavior. It's something that people do. And that there's also this component where the behavior could result in some kind of harm or damage. Often we're thinking specifically about physical harm or physical damage, like an injury. So it's got those two components there when we think about self-damaging behaviors. But I think there's also, you know, it, it is very descriptive. It doesn't explain the commonalities necessarily. So I'm always kind of looking for a new terminology that might give a little bit more understanding of sort of why these behaviors are happening. So I'm not sure. I I haven't really settled on the right terminology yet, but I think the self-damaging behavior seemed to me like it was broad enough to encompass a lot of these different types of presentations that I was hearing about, that it was something that the person was doing with knowledge that it could be harmful to themselves. And yet it was happening anyway. Well, you may have coined a new term. I guess time will tell. (laughs) Yes, we'll see. See if it catches on. And we know that NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury, is an an imperfect term as well. And we talk about that on the podcast here and there. But uh, self-damaging behaviors, self-harming behaviors, yeah, they all have limits. So with our our language. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We do talk about self-injury being just one of many types of self-damaging behaviors. But you've mentioned that some lived experience perspectives emphasize the boundaries between these behaviors are less clear than implied by research measures and definitions. Can you talk about some of these types of behaviors and what you mean by that? Sure. So one place this kind of boundary issue became really clear to me was when I was working recently with some data that were collected by a couple of researchers here in Canada, Bonnie Ledbeater and Mary Kay Nixon. They had done this study that actually started back in 2003, so 20 years ago now. That was a time when I think self-injury research was really kind of coming into its own as a field. And they were very forward thinking. They knew that this was an issue that more and more people seemed to be talking about or, or flagging as potentially important. So in this study, they had recruited a group of adolescents who were between 12 and 18 years old. And they asked them questions about different kinds of behaviors and experiences, and they included some items about self-injury. And in the first cycle where they asked people about self-injury, times where they purposely hurt themselves without wanting to die, they had kind of a checklist of different things that people could say that they'd done. And then they also included an open-ended question of 
Is there anything else that you've done to purposely hurt yourself without wanting to die? And so I had worked with those data a few years ago. And when I first received the data set, I was looking through the open-ended questions just to see sort of what people had reported. It really struck me that a lot of the behaviors that were reported as falling in that self-injury definition were things that I wouldn't immediately have thought of as being self-injury. So there was a number of people who described that they were doing some disordered eating, but it really felt to them like it was more of a self-injury behavior, whether that was you know restricting their food or purging behaviors. Some people talked about kind of the way that they drank alcohol or used drugs or specific times when they drank or used drugs in a way that felt very much like self-injury. And then there were some responses that talked about things that, honestly, I'm still not exactly sure how to think about kind of where they would fall. So in my dissertation data set that I collected, I remember one person writing, for instance, about going for a long walk on a really cold, rainy day without a coat. They had kind of felt like that was somehow a self-injurious behavior. And it, it makes sense, I guess. You could get really cold. Maybe there would be some physical consequences for that. So I think, you know, as a researcher, of course, we like things to be clean with a nice, firm operational definition. I'm certainly a quantitative researcher, so I tend to give people a lot of self-reports with a list of statements that they can rate on a scale of agree to disagree or like checklists of behaviors that they can say yes or no to. But consistently, what I've found is that when we open things up and just ask people, you know, what have you done that fits this definition of hurting yourself on purpose, not wanting to die, the types of examples that people will give are so much broader than what I'm used to seeing in the checklist. And so I don't have an answer for how to think about it necessarily, but I think it's really worth pondering a little bit of what do we mean when we talk about self-damaging behavior and self-injury, what are we specifically trying to describe? And what are the core features that would make it so that a behavior kind of falls into that definition or not? I've had experiences where people, when they hear me talk about self-injury, or that's one of my areas of interest, they'll sometimes say, well, what about this behavior? Is that considered? Or if I'm presenting even to psychologists or pediatricians, physicians, they'll be like, well, does this fall under the term non-suicidal self-injury? Clinically, does it really matter? Maybe. But I feel like they just sometimes can get wrapped up in that term and what is considered self-damaging behavior. So I think maybe this umbrella term that you're using can be more helpful to think of in terms of those behaviors. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, maybe there's, we could think about the severity of the type of injury that could result might be informative of what's the likelihood that there's some kind of physical harm that results from this behavior. Is it, you know, with non-suicidal self-injury, we know that there's an injury that's going to happen that's kind of core to the definition. For disordered eating, there may or may not be a direct injury that occurs. All the way back to that example of going for a long walk in a cold, rainy day with without a jacket, the likelihood that there would be a physical injury there, I suspect is pretty low, although I don't know exactly what the weather was that day. Yeah, that might be like an important component of how we think about it. And then I think going back to what I was talking about earlier with the experiential avoidance model, I think the other thing we can think about is sort of what what's the motivation or what's the driver behind these different behaviors and does that seem to be common across them? 
So you recently presented your research on the co-occurring prevalence rates of these other potentially harmful coping behaviors in NSSI as recently as at our IEEES conference in Vienna this summer. Can you talk about how often these self-damaging behaviors co-occur with non-suicidal self-injury? I don't have precise estimates yet. When I've looked at the literature and tried to kind of get a sense of things there, often what I'm seeing are pretty wide, widely varying estimates. So when I try and put numbers on it, it can be low as 15% and high as 50%. But I think in general, one of the things that's really clear from the literature is that these different types of potentially harmful coping behaviors are happening together more often than we would expect given chance alone. So I prepared a little bit of math (laughs) to kind of show how we think about this. And I had to go back and review it, to be honest. I haven't done this kind of math in quite a while. But if you think about two types of co-occurring problems, yeah, one of the questions we often ask is, are these two things happening in the same people more often than we would expect just given their base rate prevalence or how often they occur kind of by chance alone? So for example, and these numbers are completely made up, but if we think that about one in four people has depression and one in four people has anxiety, if there was no relationship between the two, just based on those prevalence rates, we'd expect about one in 16 people or about 6% of the population to have both depression and anxiety if it was totally chance. We know the number is much higher than that. And there's been a lot of interest in why the number would be much higher than that. And that leads to for instance, speculation that there's some kind of relationship between the two that means they tend to go hand in hand. And we see that same pattern with non-suicidal self-injury and some of these different self-damaging behaviors. So higher than chance rates of co-occurrence between NSSI and most eating disorders with a number of different types of substance use. It seems like there's some evidence suggesting higher than chance co-occurrence with risky sexual behaviors. So yeah, although the exact rates aren't totally clear, I think we can say that there seems to be something going on and possibly there's some kind of causal mechanism that's resulting in that higher co-occurrence. Do you have from your research any numbers that you could share with us where you did find the significant relationship between NSSI and some of these other self-damaging behaviors above and beyond chance? Yeah. So one of the ways that we've looked at this question of are these two things happening together more often than by chance alone. And in our most kind of conservative statistical model, where we controlled for things like underlying symptoms of anxiety and depression and problems regulating emotions, we were actually finding that the significant co-occurrence was between non-suicidal self-injury and aggression. So getting into fights or breaking objects as well as different kinds of legally risky behavior. So purposely kind of violating different laws or rules in a way that could be physically damaging, driving under the influence, for instance. But I think if you possibly, I think we kind of parceled out a little bit too much of the variance. If we didn't have such strict controls with anxiety and depression and problems in emotion regulation, we also saw significant relationships between NSSI and various disordered eating behaviors various types of substance use, and the risky sex as well. And I can talk about why that pattern, I think, happens. On that note, you also presented in the same presentation on a few different structural models of self-damaging behaviors that might help us to understand the co-occurrence of potentially harmful coping behaviors. 
I have three questions there. First, can you clarify in layman's terms what a structural model is? I can try. I think of a structural model as kind of a conceptual map that organizes constructs into categories. So it kind of helps us group like things together. So, you know, for instance, really basic example, but you take a list of animals and you find some similar traits to say, okay, these ones are birds and these other ones are mammals. And they can be simply descriptive. So we observe these traits. Everybody can kind of agree it has wings or it doesn't. And that will help us to kind of put it in the correct category. So that's one type of structural model is just a descriptive. The other type is a latent model, which goes a little bit further in that it starts to explain why the things in the category belong in the category they do. So not just grouping like with like, but explaining kind of how things ended up where they are. So if I can put you on the spot for a second, how do you feel about cilantro? I love cilantro. I could just eat it and everything. It makes every food better. Yes, I'm with you. I'm a cilantro lover (laughs) through and through. But you may be aware through, you know, cooking meals for other people, sharing meals in restaurants, that there exists a group of people who really dislike cilantro. So descriptively, we can put people into these categories of cilantro likers or cilantro dislikers. And a latent model would say, okay, maybe there's a reason that people are in these groups. And specifically, they could hypothesize that there's a a genetic mutation that's driving that thing. So the cilantro dislikers have one particular genetic variation and the cilantro likers have a different one. In psychology, we're often thinking that those latent traits that are driving the differences are things like a person's personality traits or their emotions, the way that they kind of think and respond to different situations. Yeah, that's my summary of a structural model. That's a great summary. And I'm here just continuing to think about cilantro and how much I like it. (laughs) But But I do have some friends, some close friends, actually, that have, there is a gene that makes the cilantro taste like soap and yes. anything it touches. And so I feel yeah. bad for them. And sometimes they're like, don't feel bad. Cilantro is gross. I'm like, no, but if you could taste it like I could taste it, you could understand. So I, I do feel for them. Yeah. But that, yeah, there is that group. My husband was a cilantro disliker. So we always had like, <laughs> like we would make salsa and there'd be my version and his version and mine would be just loaded with cilantro <laughs> and his would have none. Uh-huh. And I had the same reaction of like, if only you could taste what I taste, it's so delicious. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Of all the things you could ask me, we're we're just having this conversation this weekend. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. That's a great clarification about what structural models are. My second question there was, can you talk about the three different structural models that are commonly used to understand the relationship between self-damaging behaviors? Sure. So in our research, we focused on these three. Two of them are more of the descriptive structural model, and one was more of a latent trait model. So the first structural model that we looked at was developed by Sarah St. Germain and Jill Hooley, and they distinguished between two types of self-damaging behaviors. There were those that resulted in a direct injury, so that included things like non-suicidal self-injury and suicidal behavior, where the injury was immediate and it was an intended component of the behavior. 
And then they classified other behaviors as indirect self-damaging behavior because there was a chance that there would be some kind of injury, but it wasn't necessarily a guaranteed outcome of the behavior. We don't know exactly when or which time there would be a negative physical consequence. So that included things in their model like risky substance use, disordered eating, other forms of physical recklessness, and they were all considered indirect self-damaging behavior. The second descriptive model was developed by Jonathan Green and his colleagues, and he used some of the same terms, but I think the definitions were slightly different for his model. So he described three different types of self-damaging behaviors. One group was, again, the direct self-damaging behavior that was non-suicidal self-injury and suicidal behaviors where there was an immediate intended injury. He described indirect self-damaging behaviors as those where the harm occurred, but that wasn't the integral motivation of the behavior. So that would be something like punching a wall. You know, you're certainly going to have some kind of injury as a result. You'll have damage to your knuckles, for instance. But that's not necessarily why the behavior happened. It wasn't for the purpose of causing an injury. And then his third category was high-risk self-damaging behaviors. And those were very similar to the indirect self-damaging behaviors from the St. Germain and Hooley model in that the more you do the behavior, the more likely it is that you would have some kind of physical harm resulting. So things like disordered eating or risky substance use, risky sex. The third model that we looked at was more of a latent trait model. So again, this one's going to go further and try and explain why we see these specific groupings and not just tell us kind of where we would put certain things. And this was based on the work of Conrad Bresen, who was looking at a new model of psychopathology called the Hierarchical Taxonomy of Psychopathology, or much more conveniently, the High Top Model. And just to give a bit of background, the High Top Model has been developed really to try and account for some of these high rates of co-occurrence and other types of psychological problems. So trying to explain why we see such high co-occurrence between anxiety and depression, for instance. And it's moving away from these different diagnostic categories and thinking more about sort of underlying traits that might explain that covariance. So in the case of the high-top model, Conrad Bresen kind of looked at these different spectra that are proposed. So there's more internalizing versus more externalizing dimensions of psychopathology. And he organized the self-damaging behaviors according to those spectra. So some of the self-damaging behaviors might reflect more of that difficulty in managing thoughts and emotions, which we would think of as being more related to internalizing types of problems. And other types of self-damaging behaviors might be more related to components of acting out, for instance, and we think of those as being slightly more like externalizing dimensions of psychopathology. So the important thing for our research, I think, is that each of these different structural models makes slightly different predictions about which types of self-damaging behaviors should cluster together. And then in the case of the high-top model, also makes predictions about why those clusters are happening. And I'll be sure to link each of those papers in the episode notes for anyone that wants to look at them in greater depth. With these three different structural models, it's my third question related to this and probably the most important for the focus of our episode. What did you find in terms of where NSSI fits in these different models? 
We found stronger support for the high top model. And specifically, it suggested that there were sort of three subtypes of self-damaging behavior. There was the internalizing self-damaging behaviors, which included NSSI, as well as binge eating, purging, and abusing prescription medications. There was a category of disinhibited self-damaging behaviors, which included behaviors like misusing alcohol, cannabis, and other substances, as well as gambling and risky sexual behavior. And then there was a third category of antagonistic self-damaging behaviors, and that included things like getting into physical fights and other types of aggression, like breaking objects. So generally what our models were finding is that the behaviors that occurred within each of those categories co-occurred with each other more often than across categories. And then we'd also found that the categories themselves were associated with different personality traits in a predictable pattern. So for instance, we found stronger associations between the internalizing self-damaging behaviors and measures of emotional instability or limited emotion regulation strategies consistent with that idea that those behaviors really seem to be driven by difficulties managing these intense, strong, negative emotions. That's kind of the core difficulty that seems to drive those behaviors versus the disinhibited self-damaging behaviors had stronger associations with personality traits like sensation-seeking and sensitivity to reward, suggesting that they might reflect more desires to kind of increase new sensations or try and find pleasurable experiences. So that kind of helped us or helped me to understand why these particular clusters of behaviors might be co-occurring. I do want to say that there were also associations between each of those three clusters. So it's not the case that these are mutually exclusive, that you can only have one type. In fact, just the opposite. Having any of those different types of self-damaging behaviors is associated with an increased likelihood of having some of the other types as well. Even in the inventory of statements about self-injury, there's a a function of NSSI that is a sensation-seeking function. And so that you're saying this is a different category, but it does co-occur or I guess traverses each category. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's maybe an important caveat for the way that we do this kind of research is that we're looking at groups of people broadly. And in this particular study, we were just asking whether or not a person had engaged in the behavior. We didn't look too much at why they were engaging in each of these different behaviors. But it is possible, for instance, that for a person who is engaging in NSSI more for that sensation-seeking function, they might also have a greater tendency to display more of those disinhibited self-damaging behaviors versus a person who is engaging in non-suicidal self-injury for that emotion relief function might tend to show up with more of those internalized self-damaging behaviors. But we didn't we didn't look at that in our study yet. So that's that's an open question that we would need to investigate later. If I recall, one of your goals was to look at these models to see if we could get a better understanding of the experience of individuals with lived experience of self-injury. So do these models, particularly that last one, the high top model, bring us closer to lived experiences of self-injury from your perspective? This is a great question and it's a hard one to answer because like we've talked about already, lived experiences of self-injury are so diverse and everyone who experiences self-injury kind of has their own story, their own way of understanding, their own experiences that contribute. But I do think broadly that this model 
gets closer to some of the experiences I spoke about at the beginning in terms of people saying that they had a number of different behaviors that they might be doing to help avoid aversive internal experiences or to help them generate sensations when they feel completely numbed out. And I think it helps us understand how and why those things are connected. So in that way, for me, I think it helped me come back to understanding that those experiences in my interviews, for instance, or in my clinical practice, where people were reporting a number of different behaviors that might have initially seemed pretty disconnected or like they were distinct problems each unto themselves. When I think about it from the, the high top model, I can I can start to see the connections and make sense of, aha, that's why multiple things are going on. What about transitions across some of these behaviors? So I've explored that a little bit in my research, and it's something I'd like to focus on more going forward. So one of the things we know about non-suicidal self-injury, for instance, is that for most people, it seems to stop sometime in late adolescence or young adulthood, kind of between the ages of 18 and 24. Some people stop much earlier and some people much later, but that seems to be kind of the most common age of offset for non-suicidal self-injury. And we recently published a study based on that same prospective study of adolescence that I mentioned earlier that Dr. Ledbeater and Dr. Nixon had led. And we were looking at, you know, as those adolescents transitioned into early adulthood, what happened with their self-injury and then what happened with these other types of self-damaging behaviors. And what we found is that during the two-year period around when youth reported they had stopped self-injury, they also tended to report an increase of their alcohol, cannabis, and tobacco use. When I first saw those results or started to think about it, the question was, is that just because alcohol and cannabis use tend to increase in young adulthood about the same time that we know self-injury tends to be declining? Or is there something about the cessation of NSSI in particular? And it was really the latter that we were seeing in these results that Stopping self-injury seemed to have a direct relationship to the increase in substance use above and beyond the age at which it was occurring. So it might be that the substance use is increasing because the NSSI is off the table or vice versa. Maybe NSSI comes off the table as substance use becomes more of a person's coping repertoire. We don't know exactly why it's happening, but it does seem that there can be these kinds of transitions between behaviors. We've also seen in some earlier research that there are prospective relationships between the frequency of self-injury and the frequency of disordered eating three months later. So I think, you know, again, we're still not clear exactly why or how these transitions happen, but I think we're getting more understanding that they're certainly possible and they're something that we want to be attentive to going forward. I think that validates probably a lot of people's experiences, or at least parents that might see a transition from NSSI to disordered eating or vice versa. Maybe they do better and reduce disordered eating and suddenly increase non-suicidal self-injury or shift from one self-damaging type of behavior to another. So that's an interesting finding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about, you know, when I've worked with people clinically on stopping these behaviors, something we often really emphasize is keeping an eye across the whole system of different self-damaging behaviors precisely for that reason that as one starts to decline, you know, whenever you're stopping a behavior, 
there's still a need that the behavior used to fill. And we want to make sure that whatever is filling that need ideally is, is a skillful alternative. But it's not uncommon to have a person struggle to learn those skills and implement them effectively at first. Of course, that's, you know, learning any new behavior takes time. And so in some ways, it was not completely surprising to see that as a person was reducing their use of one coping strategy, they might increase the use of another coping strategy, which still could have some harmful consequences. I agree. Before we come to a close, could you talk a little bit about treatments and interventions that might take a trait-specific focus versus a broad-spectrum type of an approach? Sure. And I have to say, this is one thing that makes me feel really hopeful and keeps me excited about this work because I think we have good options for both. So there's some really nice trait-specific models. One example I think of is the Unified Protocol for Emotional Disorders that was developed by David Barlow and his colleagues and has also been adapted for use with adolescents specifically. And the goal was to create a more efficient treatment for anxiety and depression. But the treatment protocol itself is a really nice fit for someone who's struggling with those internalizing kinds of difficulties in regulating intense, aversive, negative emotions. That's kind of the core of what's being targeted. So I think that's a nice example of something that could be focused on those specific traits, if that's a concern. And in contrast, I think of something like dialectical behavior therapy as being a pretty broad spectrum treatment. That's a therapy that's focused on sort of any behavior that is either life-threatening or getting in the way of a person's quality of life. It uses common behavioral interventions like chain analysis and teaching new skills. So that's a treatment that I think could be really applied across the spectrum of different self-damaging behaviors. And we know that both of those treatments work really well in achieving those goals. I'll put a link to the Unified Protocol, at least the book that people, if they want to just learn more about it, that they can look on Amazon or wherever. And then for those that are interested in learning more about dialectic behavior therapy or DBT, we did an episode, I think it was the end of season one, on DBT for people who self-injure. And that's actually one of our most popular episodes. So people interested in learning just some of the nuts and bolts or basics of DBT can get started there. Episode 19. So what's next for you? That's a great question. I think every time I do a research study, it raises as many questions, if not more, as it answers. So from a research perspective, again, I think I see going forward some of those questions about about transitions between behaviors and the typical trajectories as being really important. Going back to how do parents and clinicians understand these experiences? How do people with lived experience understand their own experiences? I think if we can start to map out those trajectories, that can give people a lot of either validation of seeing those similar experiences reflected or just an understanding of kind of how this how this typically progresses and what it looks like. I do think there's a lot of hope to be found in those transitions as well. I should maybe mention that by the end of the study that I talked about where youth were stopping their self-injury. Most of them had not only stopped their self-injury, but they'd also started to reduce some of those other behaviors. So the substance use that came up when they were first stopping self-injury tended to come down after pretty quickly. Within two to four years, it had started to decline again. And so I think there's a lot of hopeful endpoints that we saw in that research. And I'd like to understand a little bit more, how do people get there? What are the kind of common 
pathways or transitions that occur and then how do we support people through those if we know what might be coming. That's a great area because one common question is what differentiates those individuals who continue engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, say past age 24, because they're there versus those who stop. And what are the primary differences other than depression or (laughs) something underlying? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, bringing it all together, based on our conversation today about NSSI and self-damaging behaviors, what would you recommend to parents? I think the main thing I would want parents to know is just that self-injury can and often does co-occur with these other types of self-damaging behaviors. And it seems like that could be because these behaviors are doing similar things for people, whether that's helping them manage really uncomfortable internal experiences or helping them meet a very normal need for novelty and sensation that all humans tend to seek out and feel motivated by. So I think it's important for parents to kind of keep an ear out for other ways that this might be showing up for your child. And then just to know that although it can be scary to hear about those different behaviors, I think it can feel like, oh, no, here's another problem. If you can see the connections, I think it can help you understand and also your child understand what's going on and hopefully see some kind of efficient ways or strategies that might be helpful in reducing the fears. What would you recommend to other professionals, whether clinicians or researchers? The one thing I would say is if your practice or your research focuses on any of these self-damaging behaviors, I think it's really worth systematically assessing for the other types of behaviors. So for instance, if you work with people with eating disorders, I think it's worth asking each and every person that you work with if they've engaged in self-injury, problematic drug use, risky sexual behaviors, because you'll, you'll likely find that there's a significant portion who will endorse some of those issues. And I think just having those on your radar, again, allows you to hopefully create a more efficient and comprehensive treatment path. I think one of the possible risks, again, thinking about those transitions, is that if we're focused too narrowly on one behavior without awareness of some of these other strategies, we might miss that transition. Versus if you're able to create that comprehensive assessment from the get-go, we know that we have to track the self-injury alongside the disordered eating to make sure that they're both responding to the treatment strategies how we expect them to. And the same thing, I think, for researchers. You know, I know those of us in this field, I think, feel feel very called to focus on self-injury as something that needs more attention and needs more understanding. And at the same time, I think that if we broaden our lens, hopefully we can again start to learn some new things or maybe just move our understanding forward even more rapidly by starting to understand connections. What would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? I think it's similar to what I said for parents. If you can start to find those common threads between behaviors, I just think that gives you so much power in terms of figuring out strategies to help change when you're ready. If you can find whatever it is that seems to be in common across these different behaviors, I think you're in kind of a more powerful position to start to figure out what might be effective. And I will say that's really hard work, recognizing those patterns, finding the common threads. So I would also say if you can find someone that you trust to talk about that with, I think that's a huge advantage as well. That's great. That's wonderful. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Turner, for sharing your research in hopefully an easily digestible way for people listening and a unique interview, of course, related to some of these structural models that are a little sciencey in a way, but also really relevant to how some of these co-occurring self-damaging behaviors exist in our lives and people's lives. Thank you for your openness and honesty and just sharing your own story. I'm just so thankful to have you on this podcast that you had agreed to be a part of it. So it's always great talking to you. Yeah, likewise, I'm really, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And I'm grateful to you for the work that you're doing with the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.